Welcome to the Missions Podcast, coming to you from ABWE International on a Monday morning. My name is Alex Kochman, here as always with my boss and good friend, Scott Dunford. Good morning. Uh, And we are super privileged today uh, to talk to someone that I had the privilege of meeting back in April briefly. Scott, I think you've met him a few more times, uh, a professor at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary and talking about a theological topic today that I think has massive implications for how we do frontlines missions. So who is joining us here today, Scott? It's great to have Dr. Tom Schreiner with us uh, coming from Southern Baptist Seminary, as uh, Alex already pointed out. Um, He is the professor of New Testament interpretation at Southern, previously taught at Azusa Pacific, Bethel Theological Seminary, has his PhD from Fuller, Um, and as a pastor uh, and probably missionaries who are involved in in preaching, you may have interacted with his commentaries, Mm -hmm. uh, Romans, Galatians, Hebrews, 1st and 2nd Peter, Jude, he's got commentary coming out soon on 1st Corinthians, as well as Revelation. He's written a lot on the Apostle Paul, um, but as far as me knowing him a little bit, and I know him mostly through my good friend, Chris Bruno. Friend of the show. Um, yeah, he's been on our podcast before. Um, I know that he's probably most passionate about his local church, mm. and uh, he's a pastor at Clifton Baptist Church in Louisville, Kentucky. And uh, so we're really excited to have you on, Dr. Schreiner. Thanks for joining us. Well, thanks, Scott and Alex. It's great to, great to be with you. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Dr. Schreiner, is there anything we missed in the introduction? We know you also have four children and eight grandchildren, but uh, how did you get into your current position of ministry and, and what do you enjoy most about what you're doing right now? Yeah, I'm, well, I've been at Southern. This is my 22nd year at, at Southern Seminary, so it's been, it's been a long time now. And I applied for this job. I expressed interest in it when I was in Minnesota. It was hard to leave Minnesota, but such great things were happening at Southern under Dr. Moeller. So it's, it's just been a privilege to be here and, and then, yeah, to be part of Clifton Baptist Church. Just uh, that, that's been a great uh, blessing to be uh, just vitally involved in the church. And I think being in the church has been one of the things that's helped me most as a teacher, mm-hmm. just to, to keep uh, to keep my teaching. And I think even my writing directed to uh, to the work of the church. Well, before we get into our topic this morning, tell us about the newest book that you've released on the topic of spiritual gifts. Yeah, I, I, that came out uh, late spring. And, um, you know, I wanted to write a book that was accessible to the ordinary person. So it, it's the kind of book that if you have an evening, you could probably finish it. It's it's pretty brief. It's It's not technical. So I wanted to write a book that defended a, a nuanced cessationism. I'm sure we'll talk about that. Uh, that you could hand to a friend and just say, "Hey, here, take a look at what this book is saying on spiritual gifts." Because I think there there aren't many books out there in that category. There's maybe some more technical stuff, but I wanted to write something that was sort of semi-popular. Well, and uh, before we get too deep into it, I, I love that term you used, nuanced cessationism. Just so we're clear, we're not talking about cessation um, from the union. We're not talking about American <laughs> politics here in the South. Uh, <laughs> I hear talks of California cessation, um, but I, I, don't, I don't know if that's going to happen. 
maybe the fault line will break and it'll just fall off into the ocean. Who knows what's going to happen <laughs> out there on the West Coast? Uh, but but Scott, I, I enjoyed the way that we talked about this offline. So um, what, walk us through the this topic we're addressing today. Well, in the missions world, what we're going to be talking about is controversial, and I know we're probably going to have people listening yeah. in. They're like, "What in the world are Scott and Alex doing?" Uh, they they think this, that already. This issue, <laughs> um, and and I know from a missionary perspective, it's a there's an odd tension. Um, a lot of missionaries. Uh, when they're on the field are experiencing and seeing things happening, especially if they're working in contexts that are that are um, that are animistic or uh, traditional religionist, um, where they're seeing and, exp- and interacting with with some supernatural things that they're seeing in the lives of the people around them. Uh, but then coming back to churches that are very conservative, uh, very uh, have, have a very um, um, no spiritual gifts, or as may overstating it, but certainly they don't expect or see the miraculous happening regularly. And so there creates a weird tension in the mission community about what's happening overseas versus what's happening in the States. And yet the scripture does address those things. And I'm excited to kind of interact with that with you, uh, Dr. Schreiner. So as you're talking about this idea of spiritual gifts, um, what what caused you to even want to write on this book? I know you, you're saying I want to write something accessible, but theologically, what was going on there mm-hmm. that would cause you to write that? Yeah, well, I'd say two things. First, I mean, a good part of the book is just laying out what the Bible says about spiritual gifts. And I, and I give, well, 10 practical truths about spiritual gifts that I, that I just think are helpful for churches and Christians uh, to consider. So, so, so in, 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 in that sense, it's a, a, a kind of a practical guide. And secondly, I did want to defend the idea that uh, some of the gifts, the miraculous gifts, assigned gifts, people use different terms, that those gifts had ceased. Um, but, but I said earlier, I'm a nuanced cessationist because I said in cutting-edge missionary situations, God may be pleased to do the signs and wonders and miracles that are at least analogous to what we see in the New Testament. So, but yeah. So, what what so. is the purpose then of of those sign gifts as you describe them? What as you as you were exploring the scriptures? What is the purpose and point of those? I think they first of all they they represent signs of the kingdom. The kingdom breaks in. Promises of the kingdom are inaugurated in the in the ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So that they they represent the 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 coming of the kingdom, and I also think they accredit and verify the ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus. The message of the gospel that he preached and the apostles preached. So I think that there was. Uh, a singular work of the spirit in such signs, wonders, and miracles at the time of Jesus and the apostles. Now, I understand the perspective that you're coming from, and I would agree, but how would you respond to someone that would say, well, what do you mean it it may please God to do some of these things in a missionary context? Who are we to, and and you've heard this phrase, I'm sure you dealt with it in your book, put God in a box. Who are we to put God in a box? So so what would be your initial response to, to someone who would say that? And I think sometimes that can be our knee-jerk reaction. Well, I mean, the first thing I'd say is I'm not saying, and I'm not saying that God doesn't do miracles today. 
to say that certain gifts has ceased is it the same thing as saying God doesn't do miracles or even signs and wonders? So um, a right understanding of cessationism doesn't mean there are no miracles. Mm. The question is whether people have particular gifts. The, the, the second thing I'd say is I think a lot of charismatics – I love charismatic Christians. They're my brothers and sisters. But I think a lot of charismatics, they actually dumb down the definition of what the gifts are to say that they're still present today. So I think that's a common problem. Thirdly, even on the mission field, we, 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 we have to watch out. I believe God does miracles. But we have to be careful that we don't become credulous. I'll define that. Mm. What I mean by that is we have to be careful that we don't just accept the report of what anyone says. Christians can exaggerate things as well. Even in the New Testament, they were careful to verify that the miracles even happened. Think of the blind man in John chapter 9. So you know, people believe all kinds of things just because they're a Christian, even because they're a missionary. Did a miracle really take place? I'm not doubting miracles. Maybe it did, but maybe they were wrong. Um, so it's not wrong to be skeptical, to say, show me, show me the show me the proof, show me the beef. <laughs> right. Is, did, did a miracle really happen? So uh, sometimes Christians think, well, that's lack of faith. But I don't think it's lack of faith to say um, is an interpretation of the Bible proposed really right. Just, right. Because a past, just because a pastor says something, that doesn't mean it's right. Just because someone says a miracle happened, did it really happen? Now, again, just to be clear, I do think miracles happen. But people claim all kinds of stories I mean, I, I had a I had a person claim to me that the roast beef that she ate expanded for all her company, like the miracle of the feeding of the five thousand. I could could God do that? I think so. Do I believe her? I don't. I I think I think that was a product of her imagination. Mm. <laughs> what would you say then um, are some of the maybe the more credible things that we can see happen? Because I think there's even a distinction that you would want to make between a miracle, um, maybe in the classic historic sense of that word, and an apostolic sign gift, which is the category that we would assign to uh, some of these spiritual gifts that we, we would agree are not normative today. Well, I mean, I, I think we could say, and I, I agree with you, I think we could say, God, 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 there are instances where God heals a person supernaturally. I, I think there are credible cases of that. I think there are credible cases where a person knows something about someone else, and um, there's just no way they could have known that humanly. But But what I would argue is, such occurrences are rare. At the time of Jesus and the apostles, the miracles and signs and wonders were were quite common to accredit and verify and show the truth of the revelation that is given through Jesus Christ. So the, the, the commonness by which it happens 
So I, I do say I'm, I'm not even sure whether this has happened because I just haven't done the research. But I do say you could have something analogous to that when the gospel is preached to uh, a people group that's not heard the gospel before. Mm. I think that could happen, well, you know. But I have friends who are who are missionaries in Papua New Guinea, and they evangelized a new tribe, and that didn't happen at all. Hmm. No, no remarkable signs, wonders, and miracles. Yet, eighty percent of the tribe was saved through the preaching of the gospel. <laughs> wow. Yeah, it, that, that goes a little bit to um, what you mentioned, which is how often we should expect some of these things. And I, I love that in your response just now, you brought out a phrase, and I, I want to talk about this a little more, which is just that that ordinary preaching of the gospel. Because I think where this really comes down to it is I think we can, we can all pretty much agree that God can move in incredible ways on the mission field. But the question is, what should our methodology be? Should our methodology be one that depends on seeing the extraordinary happen on a daily basis as normative for the gospel to go to the unreached? Or should we have a methodology that depends more on these ordinary means of grace, things like preaching, prayer, personal evangelism? So talk to us a little bit about how that forms your your, your missiology, your, your methodology there. Yeah, uh, I think um, I think the, the 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 methodology that we should use is the preaching of the gospel. We should put our trust that the gospel saves. Um, we don't have to have signs, wonders, and miracles. God may be pleased to give them, but that I would argue is is rare. It's not it's not normative. Um, many, many churches, I know you guys know this, many churches around the world, in the United States as well, but many churches that are very strongly charismatic, they actually preach a, a false gospel. Now, for those listening, I didn't say all charismatics <laughs> preach a false let, gospel. Let the record show. <laughs> but I did say many do. Mm. And because for many... And this this is well attested. For many, it's aligned with the prosperity gospel. Mm. The, the the two often go together. So what you, what you find is instead of the preaching of the gospel of Jesus as the crucified and risen Lord for the forgiveness of our sins, the focus of these churches is on miracles, signs, and wonders, and it's especially aligned with God. God's going to keep you. Uh, wealthy and healthy, and you're not going to suffer. So um, that that is a huge problem uh, on the mission field, as anybody knows who studied it. Right. We just we just had a, a couple of interviews. I'm not sure if they'll come up before or after this one um, with uh, missionaries and a pastor Conrad and Bayway, who you may know um, about this very topic of of um, this this confusion that takes place in the field with um, African tribal religion and the 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 miracles and the power encounters that are happening there and Christianity. So I have a question. You make a pretty bold statement, and for us, you know, as anyone who would who would say there are any type of cessationist or don't expect, they don't walk into church on Sunday morning expecting miracles to take place, to say that that miracles have ceased, and yet 
Other, also, other than the miracle of God I'm changing sorry. his people's hearts through their word. Yeah, Let me I, just throw that in there. And I, and I missed <laughs> That's it. the real miracle is being born again. The, and, I, and I didn't mean to say miracles have ceased, but to say that in general, the normative practice of, of these sign apostolic gifts have ceased. That's a pretty bold statement because you're not saying all spiritual gifts have ceased. You're saying actually many of the spiritual gifts are still at work in the church, but some of these gifts are, have come to an end. Why do you make that statement? What does the scripture point to? Yeah, I, I would point to Ephesians 2.20. The church is, is founded on the apostles and the prophets. So um, I would argue that both apostles and prophets have passed away. We don't have authoritative apostles in that technical sense. We, we, don't, have, um, we don't have prophets who speak... God's infallible, inerrant word today. And so we, we already see, if that's the case, and I think it is, that we, we don't have spokespeople today who are declaring God's word infallibly. Instead, we rely on the revelation that's deposited in, in the scriptures. So again, again, we see that the there was a, a particular focus on these signs, wonders, and miracles and revelation from God when we had the ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Mm. And that makes perfect sense, doesn't it? That God wanted to specially uh, glorify his son. Right. And that, that's that's exactly what he did. And And I would say... That this is disputed, but I think it's right. Most most people throughout church history have agreed with this uh, judgment. Even just the use of the term sign there, I think, is instructive. A sign is a sign of something specific that's happening in redemptive history. So when you look at the whole of Scripture, I think we have this common misconception that miracles were just happening left and right all throughout the canon, when really you have a concentrated period of miracles in the ministry of Moses, which was about 40 years. You have a, a concentrated period of miracles in the ministry of Elijah and Elisha, uh, which, which really is the, is, is the consummate example of the, the, the prophets in that era of ministry. And then you have a period of about 40 years of Christ's ministry and the apostles' ministry up until the destruction of the second temple. So it's God giving signs to unique things that are happening in redemptive history and saying, hey, something has changed. The gospel is here now. Would you agree with that judgment? Uh, absolutely. There, there are other miracles, uh, but, but, the, but the great outcropping of miracles, the great majority of miracles take place at, at those redemptive historical events, as you point out. I think that's exactly right. Now, uh, now I'd like to take this conversation and slightly um, use the word nuance, so I'll say a more nuanced direction. Uh, some of the issue is that as missionaries are engaging these front lines, unreached contexts, is that they're, they're going into places where demonic activity in particular is much more palpable uh, than it mm-hmm. is in the West, at least visibly, mm-hmm. at least visibly. And uh, that's really where some of these conversations come down is, is engaging, you know, the idea of spiritual warfare there in a very direct way. How would you address missionaries going into, let's say, a, an animistic context, um, you know, a, a part of, let's say, West Africa, where where witch doctors are, are still a thing. And understanding, too, that, you know, as we look at a scripture lays out these lists of, of apostolic sign gifts, 
things relating to, to demons may or may not be on that list necessarily. I mean, is that the same thing that, you know, that is ceased along with the prophets and apostles or, or is there still real spiritual activity as far as angels and demons in the world today? And, and how should we make sense of those issues? Well, yeah, I think there's still demonic uh, activity today. I think there's demonic activity in false religions. I mean, I, I think, and I think you see that in witch doctors. I think you see demonic activity in um, in Western materialism. Hmm. I, I think you, I think yes. you see, I think you see demonic activity. Um, in in our philosophical worldviews, so I think demonic activity manifests itself in different ways in 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 different cultures. That that doesn't mean I don't think that necessarily a believer who who can clearly identify someone as demonized will necessarily be able to cast out the demon the way the apostles. And Jesus did. Maybe, maybe they will. Maybe they won't. Because uh, you know, demonization, sickness—they're—they're they're all ultimately due to sin, not necessarily personal sin, right? You—you—you you, you may be sick, right? But it's not because you personally sin. But there's sin in the world. The same is true true of demonization. So, so therefore, you—you you may encounter sickness, you may encounter demons, that doesn't necessarily mean you have the same power and authority as the early apostles in Christ just to heal and to exercise uh, demons. Perhaps God will grant you that, but I don't think it's automatic. What comes to mind for me is a comment that uh, one of our own researchers here uh, in the building at ABWE, uh, Dr. John Morgan, uh, who we recently interviewed, he mentioned something similar to you as far as spiritual activity in the West and said that materialism is really just animism without the spirits. Uh, It's it's spiritual in in a different kind of way. So we are, um, you know, as you rightly pointed out there, I think equally enslaved to some of these, these demonic. Uh, lies and strongholds in our culture of radical secularism and materialism. Well, and one of the things that makes me believe in Satan is how many people in our culture, they don't believe in judgment. They don't believe in hell. Mm-hmm. Therefore, they have very little interest in the gospel because they, they think everybody's going to be fine. Mm-hmm. Well, Who's convinced them of that? <laughs> right. I think that's clearly a satanic lie. So you, you see in, in, in the field a lot of times these things happening where you have this idea of a power encounter uh, where certain missionaries may um, go into an area and either – engage in prayer walking. And I'm not saying that that necessarily is a wrong thing. I think it could be a very, very good thing. But prayer walking for the purpose of kind of spiritual mapping out a place and determining where um, demonic activity is happening and then engaging um, in, in the engaging those dark spiritual forces in a very uh, con, con, confrontative way. Yeah, a power encounter would be like a Mount Carmel experience all over again. Sure. Elijah comes in, pretend he's the missionary, says, all right, bring out your witch doctors. Let's see who's the real God. You know, and I've never actually 
seen any of the missionaries who practice this actually tried something like that. <laughs> it usually looks a little uh, a little easier and tamer than that. Yeah. But but um, what do you what do you say to that kind of activity? Is is that the way that Christians ought to be going about doing um, spiritual warfare uh, today? Uh, how, how what is spiritual warfare? Uh, what what should that look like for the Christian um, in the in the twenty first century? Yeah, I would I would say uh, it's far better. To go in and tell people the good news of the gospel. That's fundamentally what spiritual warfare is. I mean, fundamentally what we're called to do is to proclaim the gospel to people. Mm. And that's what it means to tear down strongholds. The Mm. strongholds are the strongholds that resist the gospel of Christ. So, I mean, I'd have to hear specifics, but I'm skeptical of walking through and mapping spiritual powers. And instead, of course, there's spiritual and demonic powers there. How are they thrown down? Mm-hmm. You don't have to go through and map them. You, 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 go, you, you, you settle amongst the people. You get to know them. You translate their language. And you slowly unfold the gospel to them. I, I love your approach there because I think mm-hmm. so many times we think that spiritual warfare involves a different sort of activity than the same activity that we use when we're putting sin to death in our own lives and when we're confronting sin in the lives of others and our brothers and sisters in the Lord and the local church. And so what I mean by that is that if I'm combating a sin in my own life, uh, whether, whether that's rooted in my flesh or the world or the devil, right? You have that those, those three, the world, the flesh, and the devil. I'm going to mortify that sin the same way. And in a, in a similar sense, in John 20, 12, um, when Jesus is about to go to the cross, what does he say? He says, now the ruler of this world is cast down. Uh, in other words, there's a there's a cosmic upheaval that happens in the, the death and resurrection and ascension and session of Christ, that that is the basis of our spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare isn't primarily being able to call out demons by name, recognize them, and talk to them personally. Possibly it includes that, possibly it doesn't, but primarily it's proclaiming this gospel because in the gospel, the spiritual authorities are disarmed because their only weapon against us is our own sin. And with that nailed to the cross, they have no power over us and the people that we're preaching to. So it's really bringing the gospel to bear. Yeah, I don't, and I don't think there's any examples where demons are identified by name. You know, the, the legion example, the demons aren't named. Hmm. It's it's the number. Mm-hmm. But they're not they don't they don't give individual names. So that passage is often misused. Where 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 are demons named? I don't I don't see uh, any example <laughs> yeah. of that in scripture. Now, talk to us a little bit though because you characterized your position as a as a nuanced cessationist, uh, maybe someone in that J.I. Packer mold of God does work in extraordinary ways. And and I don't have an, a, a waterproof argument in every way here, but here's what I see in Scripture that, you know, why things might be a little different today than when the apostles were still living and breathing on the mission field. Practically speaking now, can continuationists or maybe someone would want to say charismatic, but but really we're talking about just people that have a position that says that these things do continue. Can continuationists and cessationists partner together on the field? Can they do evangelism together? And if so, how and, and to what degree does that partnership take place? Well, that's, that's a complex question because, you know, the, the we'd always have to look at the details. I mean, can you work together with someone else? In church planning, I mean, I tend to think 
theologically, there has to be a lot of commonality. I think it's difficult um, to, to, to answer a question like that in the abstract. Mm. But 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 if they but if they proclaim the same gospel and the focus is on the gospel itself and and God sovereignly unleashes signs, wonders and miracles, I would argue that's rare, even on the mission field. And and they and and they join together in saying that's not the focus of our ministry, yeah, then I think they could work together. But you know, it isn't just this issue. You have to look at a lot of things. Uh, I know a lot of missionaries. You have to look at a lot of uh, questions when you're talking about partnering with someone. As I'm sure you guys know as well, that's it, 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 it's hard enough to partner with people that you even agree with. <laughs> so, <laughs> I find that every time Scott and I are in the studio here. <laughs> yeah. Just thinking that. <laughs> You know, in talking in talking about this, you make you've made the statement a couple times now um, that yes, um, you're not looking for miracles in the same way that you see in the ministry of Jesus or in the early chapters of Acts. Um, that you do allow for the possibility of rare um, supernatural breaking outs. Um, why uh, w- do you limit it that way? Why do you keep using the term rare? Because um, there's part of me that's like, hey, I would love to be able to heal people. I would love to be and I and I think actually if I could go over next door and heal my sick neighbor of cancer, um, they would probably be more likely to come to Jesus. You know, if I could walk into a village and that I've never I've never studied that language before and just speak fluently in in that tribal tongue, then that would have a huge powerful impact on those people. Um, and yet you're saying a hey, that might happen, Scott, but it's rare. Um, so scripturally, why are you making that case that that kind of supernatural um, working is more rare today. Well, it's really what you mentioned before is I think in redemptive history, there were certain moments, the time of Moses, Elijah and Elijah, the ministry of Jesus, where these uh, signs and wonders and miracles uh, were predominant. So uh, if you look at the rest of scripture, were there miracles? Yes, but I think they were unusual. And, And I think we're at that period of redemptive history today. We don't, we don't need signs, wonders, and miracles to accredit uh, the New Testament in the same way that we do mm. did, did during Jesus' ministry. Now, as in terms of the nuance, God, God is sovereign, isn't he? Mm. We, we don't want to box him in. We can say, could God, however, in his sovereignty, decide at particular locales to uh, suddenly manifest himself in signs and wonders and miracles such as there were in the New Testament. Are there examples of that? My answer is simply possibly, perhaps, uh, because there are there are such reports, but as I said earlier, reports have to be verified. But I, I think I think there are reports that look credible that God has done such such a thing. But I but I think even if we look around the world empirically, it's it's rare. I was talking I was I was not talking, but I was in a situation in the United States with a very honest, godly charismatic and he talked about healings in their church of 
TMJ, back injuries, stomach problems, so forth, leg lengthenings. And I asked them, do you, do you guys heal anybody that's blind? Anybody that's uh, crippled? Um, anybody who has cancer? And he said, I quote him exactly, we don't do those. Hmm. We don't do those. Now, my, my response to that is he was an honest person. Hmm. But a lot of the alleged healings are difficult to decipher. But if you heal someone who's blind right. and they verify the person's blind in John 9, that's clear. Yeah. That is clear. And and I would just say empirically, we in the United States, but in the rest of the world, that's rare. That's rare. Can God do it? Yes. Has God done it in history? I, I can't prove that he has since the time of the New Testament, but presumably he has. But I don't think we should say we should be expecting that. And I think this is one of my pastoral concerns. I think we raise false hopes in people mm-hmm. if we promise them something like that. And I think a lot of ministries do promise that. And mm-hmm. that's that's pastoral mispractice. And and it would be mission mission malpractice as well. Right. You know, it's interesting. Uh I, yesterday, one of our interns at our church, uh, his name is Noah Gwen. I'll give him a little shout out here. He preached a really great message um, from uh, the Gospel of Luke and the healing of the lepers. And uh, he made a statement that I, I had never heard before, but that um, that in the in the rabbinic writings, there's really no examples of supernatural healings of lepers taking place. Good for this intern quoting rabbinic writings. Yeah, he did he did a great job. And uh, and as he was and as he was talking about that, he just highlighted the fact. That that these priests who whose job it was who've never actually done this job before probably which is to verify that a leper has been cleaned of his leprosy and healed of his leprosy as the moment they're plotting the death of Jesus are having to give at attestation uh, to to the fact that Jesus actually <laughs> is healing lepers um, and and so that it kind of highlights that amazing power of Jesus's miracles which which forced the religious leaders to acknowledge that Jesus really was who he says he was. So there is something uh, definitely to that glorification of Christ in his ministry um, in the healing of people that, that sometimes we're not seeing as much in these, in, in these examples that we're hearing from the field. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So I have a follow-up question to that then, because your book on, on spiritual gifts isn't just a negative book. Uh, there yeah. are there are spiritual gifts that are in use today and that we should be exercising and using, um, but, but, but sometimes they take a back seat. You know, we, we'd rather have, we're all, like the, the church in Corinth that would rather have uh, gifts of miracles than gifts of helping or giving or administration or even teaching. Um, so how is the, how, what are the ways that God uses spiritual gifts today in powerful yeah. ways? Why is that such a significant thing for the church? And have we, have we de-emphasized some of those gifts uh, to our own peril? Yeah, I don't know if we've de-emphasized them, maybe, but I but I would say that the the key for understanding spiritual gifts is being involved in one another's lives, being involved in the local church. So one one of the points I make in the church is, I mean in the book is, it's it's a good thing to know 
your spiritual gift. That That's a benefit. But even if you don't know it, even if you never knew what your gift was, and our culture is very focused on knowing what our gift is, even if you don't know what your gift is, but if you're involved vitally and deeply in the lives of other Christians, you're actually exercising your spiritual gift even if you don't know it. Because when we read the scriptures, spiritual gifts aren't about knowing your personal private gifts so much, but about edifying other people. But you, but we won't edify other people if we lead isolated lives. If we lead, if we lead lives where we're not involved in other believers corporately in the body of Christ. And probably the main gifts that God gives people are helps, service, encouragement. Those, those gifts can only be exercised when we're uh, in fellowship with other Christians. So uh, if, if a believer says, I don't, I don't know what my gift is, my response is, just just become involved in your church, get involved in the lives of other people. Mm. And and your gift your gift will be exercised. And probably you'll come to know what your gift is. I've I mean I've seen this as a pastor. I I can tell you with the people who are involved in the life of our church, I can tell you what their gifts are. It's it's obvious. I mean we, we know each other. And uh, not that people only have one gift. People have, can have more than one, but you can you can see their gifts in operation. Mm. And, you know, what's interesting, too, is you talk about being in community with uh, other believers in the local church. Uh, I think of the privilege that Scott and I have here of being at a missions agency and being able to interact with people who are on the field, uh, who are in some of these situations that maybe the rest of us only know from afar. And when you do start interacting with people on this sort of personal and relational basis, uh, especially those who've served in the Muslim world, we've interacted with uh, two believers that have done a lot of work with the underground church in a country I won't name, uh, but they've shared, oh, yes, this is happening in record numbers. It's just a it's a reality. Um, you know, undeniable for them. Uh, but the issue of, and, and you've probably done some thought about this as well, dreams and visions happening, uh, particularly in the Muslim world, and uh, a lot of them leading to Christ. Now, the stories that we've seen um, and heard, uh, we're, we're not seeing so much that in those dreams um, that scripture is being replaced, uh, but rather that it's usually something vague, someone in a white robe coming to maybe a Muslim, someone who hasn't come to Christ yet, but saying to them, go talk to your Christian friend, go pick up this book, go walk in through that church door. And through that, that, that pushes them to then encounter the gospel message, which then the normal means of grace take over. They hear the gospel and many times they're saved. But what are some of your thoughts about that? Because I think there's overlap between that topic and some of these apostolic sign gifts, even though dreams and visions aren't necessarily in that, you know, first Corinthians 13 and 14 list of gifts that we've been talking about. You know, I, I have a friend who's a pastor in a, in a church. It's permitted there, but in a, in an Arab country, Middle East country, I won't, I won't name the country. And he, He's the pastor of a large church, and so he's very well connected there. And and he says exactly what you said. Every case 
that he's heard of, of these dreams and visions. And I think God grants them. But he said in every case, the dream and vision itself never saved them. But the dream or vision was always read this book, go talk to this person. And either in the book or by talking to the person, they heard the gospel. And then they don't, they're not all saved, right? Uh, some, some uh, don't, um, some don't accept the message they've heard, but m- many are. But the, but it's interesting, isn't it? The dreamer vision itself, apparently, they're, they're, the gospel is not being declared to them in the dreamer vision. Mm. It's it's a tool to connect them with someone. Yeah. So I, I think that's helpful to recognize. So one of the things I keep hearing you say is that, and I think this is helpful, you can be a cessationist, someone who believes that some of the gifts were for a particular time in history, in redemptive history, and others have ceased, while still believing that God does miracles, that God works in supernatural ways, that dreams and visions can still be happening, that even even miraculous outbreakings can be taking place in certain places. You can actually hold to both views. That's what I'm, or both, you actually, see both of those things happening. And that's what I'm hearing you say. So in some some ways, you're kind of not maybe redefining cessationism, but helping us to see cessationism in, a, in its proper context. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's right. And, and I suppose the burden of my book is don't, but don't rely on such things. Mm. Don't say if it's not happening, it's because we don't have faith. I mean, God is sovereign, and that, that is not the normal, ordinary way in which God works. And we, we're so prone not to trust the ordinary. We're so prone really not to trust the gospel. So true. We, we want to go to other means very quickly. We're not content with what we've been given oftentimes. Yeah. What would be um, resources, including your own book, Spiritual Gifts, that just came out in the spring, early summer, but uh, what would be other resources that you would point people towards on this topic? I think if you want a more scholarly book, I think Richard Gaffin's book, uh, Perspectives on Pentecost, is helpful. And I, I think, is it Wayne Grudem and Sam Storms, if you want to read a Four Views book on miraculous gifts, I forget the exact title, but you could find it easily. Just Google Sam Storms, Wayne Grudem. Yeah, we'll make four, sure we include a link views. for that in the show notes. Uh, that's a helpful resource as well. And where can people hear more from you, see the books that you've published, and uh, make sure that they follow you? I'm on Twitter at, at I forget my my name there, but you can find me just uh, you can just look for me. I'm on Twitter and then I have a faculty page at at Southern Seminary as well. You can find me there. Well, wonderful. Dr. Schreiner uh, at Dr. Tom Schreiner on Twitter. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for walking us through uh, pretty winsomely uh, a, a balanced and nuanced approach to this issue where we recognize that we can't put God in a box, but he's also shown us in his word how he prefers to work and and most of all, how, how God does all of these things to glorify Christ and, and to spread the gospel around the world. So thank you again so much for your time today, and we look forward connecting with you again in the future. Thanks, Scott and Alex. It's been great to be with you. If you want to get more great content on theology, missions, and practice, go to missionspodcast.com. And while you're there, make sure that you subscribe in iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite listening platform. And please make sure that you also give us an honest review and a five-star rating. And don't forget to be sending your questions to alex at missionspodcast.com, along with any other ideas for future episodes. Until next time, thank you for joining us.